Words are powerful. They can heal or hurt, innovate or destroy, cure us, bring us down, and then bring us right back up again. The words we choose evoke feelings and responses in ourselves and those who hear us on a daily basis. They can even, if we are wise, be life-saving. Welcome to There's a Word for That, a podcast that explores a different word or expression each week in our relationship to it. I'm your host, Suzanne Dressler, and thank you for joining me on this journey. Today, November 11th is Veterans Day. I decided that I wanted to interview veterans for the podcast. When I hear the word veteran, I immediately think of my grandfathers, both of whom served during World War II and who were very proud of their service. I think of the men and women who have given their lives, risked their safety, and dedicated themselves to protecting us and our freedoms. I wanted to get the perspective of being overseas in the military from two different viewpoints. Therefore, we recorded two episodes for this week. These episodes are a little different in that they're not so much focused on the word veteran as they are about understanding and listening to the lives of these two men. For today's episode, the first of two veteran interviews, I sit down with Colonel Morton N. Katz, United States Army, retired. He is 101 years old and fought in the Battle of the Bulge, among many other World War II events, including the liberation of Wobelin, a subcamp of the Neuengamme concentration camp near the city of Ludwigslust in Germany. He was generous enough to take me on a journey through his life as a soldier in the war, and I am eternally grateful and honored. I hope you enjoy his stories and memories as much as we do. Thank you for your service, Colonel Katz. You are a true patriot, an American hero. For the purpose of this interview, I am Colonel Morton and Katz, United States Army, retired. Okay, Colonel Katz, got it. Thank you. And you were part of the 82nd Airborne Division, yes? Yes, uh, not early, later in the war. Uh, you want me to just give over the, an outline of what I where I was? And, I would absolutely love for you to. T- My grandfather right. fought in World War II, so all this right. is very special. For uh, me I was life. commissioned. This is strictly from my military standpoint. I was commissioned in the Army Reserve in, in June of 1940. Uh, at that time, I graduated school of college in 1939. Uh, I was unemployed. And um, I uh, applied. At that time, they were expanding the military services. I applied for duty with the uh, expanded army, uh, what they call non-flight duty with the Air Corps, as it was known then. Uh, First E-troops, cargo uh, duty aboard army cargo ships, uh, and everything else. I was turned down, so I went to graduate school. And uh, my second year, started my second year, uh, Pearl Harbor came along and, and, and uh, the attack took place on December 7, 1941. And within five days, I had my origin report to Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, I went to the infantry school uh, to, so I could catch up on what was going on. I... Uh, Signed after a uh, speech at, uh, at the school by somebody from the Airborne School. I signed what I thought was an attendance roster, and it turned out to be an application to uh, join the, uh, go to the jump school. Right. I graduated jump school in uh, August 1942, and I was assigned the 502nd Parachute Infantry, which is the uh, outfit featured in the movie. Band of Brothers. Oh, really? Which I saw, and it was somewhat inaccurate, but it was all right. Well, that's movies, right? (laughs) Yeah. What? That often happens with movies. Yeah. So uh, I was at the uh, Woodley 502nd for something like six weeks at Fort Benning doing training, and we were then sent to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to form the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, I was, we were there about five days when they, uh, 
wanted some people for, for uh, re replacements. And I was with the picture with a group, 12 uh, very raw green second lieutenants and 160 basic privates. Uh, we went over on the Queen, Mayor, Queen Elizabeth and uh, we reported to the commander of the Airborne Outfit Overseas, which then was the 2nd Battalion, 503rd Parachute Infantry, a separate battalion. And uh, we reported there, and he, the commander, Lieutenant Colonel Edson D. Raff, and he greeted us with, you're not supposed to be here. I stand in the combat zone. <laughs> but we were not in the invasion plans for North Africa, and none of our... In group went in on the North African jump on November 7th, 8th, 1942. Operation. My, yeah, yeah. my grandfather was in North Africa. He and uh, uh, we, we followed by ship and wound up in uh, a little town near or, uh, Algiers called Maison Cadet. Mm -hmm. We were there, we did some, some training, but it was just sort of hanging around. The battalion came back from Tunisia in January, Raft the promoted the colonel and sent back to the States to form a new unit. And uh, we were later on sent out to Morocco, a town called Uja, to form the 5th Army in North Africa. While we were there in uh, Morocco, uh, the 82nd Airborne Division, which had been, we had shipped out from uh, Hampton Roads, Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, on August 29, 1943, came over, and by the time they got into the uh, area to set up living quarters, uh, the North African campaign was over. The 82nd Airborne did not take any part in the uh, uh, North African campaign. Okay. Uh, okay. We were then attached to uh, the 82nd Airborne right the administration. And went back to Tunisia with the uh, division. Uh, we did not go into Sicily with the division. We were attached to the 325th Glider Regiment, uh, and they were, did not take part in the campaign in Sicily. And uh, while we were in Sicily, I was busy getting troops out of aircraft and ferrying the battalion and the equipment into Sicily. And when I finally got to Sicily myself, I found the battalion was gone. Uh, the uh, 82nd Airborne Commander of Ridgeway had permission from Mark Clark, the 5th Army Commander, to drop the battalion at Molino to block the highway to Salerno, which was then in big trouble uh, on the beachhead. Uh, I got everybody together that I had, and I was able to get on an LST and rejoined the battalion, which is now known as the 2nd Battalion, 509th Parachute Infantry, uh, in, in Naples. And right. had a new, new commander, appointed me battalion adjutant. My first operation with the battalion and under the new commander was the invasion, it was the uh, taking the mountain at uh, Venafro on uh, November 11th, 1943. Can I ask you a question, uh, Colonel Katz? Did you ever um, parachute out? I assuming? did not okay. make any parachute jumps, many combat jumps in the in the European theater. Okay. Did take part in all of the ground operations and in our amphibious operations. Okay. Because of my assignments, I did not jump into into anywhere in the European theater. Got it. Okay, thank you. But so, I do have credit for nine campaigns, and uh, it's uh, amazing. It's amazing to me. You remember every name and every date. Do you uh, still see the pictures? Yeah. Uh, at that time, Lieutenant Colonel William P. Yarbrough, outstanding guy, and the philosophy of the infantry school. Follow me, and he expected the as he had the army of the adjutant to be with him. Right. And before the storming of the mountain, he took me with him on a long, a deep penetration reconnaissance. He scared the hell out of me. I'd be scared. <laughs> that sounds but, scary. But he was a kind of a commander uh, who inspired you with confidence. 
and I knew that if I were with him on this reconnaissance, it would be all right. And That's we interesting. On the 11th of November that year, and he led the advance and took me with him. Wow. Conducted ground operations there. I was serving both as adjutant and intelligence officer. I had a patrol action up there. I took part in almost all the patrols we had mm-hmm. on the mountain. We were then relieved in December to be, go back to Naples and set up for the Anzio beachhead operation. Okay. Uh, okay. Much of the planning was done in our headquarters. And the plan was to get into the Anzio beach and go into Rome and then cut the Germans off below Rome. Did you know at the time, so my grandfather was in a lot of the same places that you were in. He was a, an MP officer. And my, my grandfather was a private and he was an, a military police officer. And he was in a lot of the same places. He was in Italy, Algiers, North Africa. And I asked him once about the Holocaust because I'm Jewish, and I know you're Jewish. And I said, you know, here in the States, a lot of people didn't know what was happening. But he, I said, did you know? And he said, oh, we knew. He said it was in the Stars and Stripes newspaper. So we all knew what was happening yeah. with the tracks. So I, I'm just curious, if, if you don't mind my asking yeah, you, sure. um, if you, do you remember when you found out or when all of you found out about... I don't remember exactly. It was just some time when we were in, in Europe. Right. The confirmation I had was later on when we had been uh, wiped out in Belgium, and I was uh, among those assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, and in the division I was assigned to the, to the 505th Parachute Infantry right. Regiment. Mm-hmm. And uh, as S2 intelligence, and we were on the Rhine River. But let me get to that. Yes, yes, please continue. In sequence, it's okay with you. Sure, oh. no, please go, 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 yes. Huh? <laughs> yes, 100%. This is your interview. Okay. You take the lead. Uh, we went into the Anzio beachhead. Uh, we were taken down there by a British ship, the HMS Winchester Castle. Uh, the Rangers went in it on January 22nd. 44 uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning, 0200, and then we went at 0400. Now, never having done this before, it's pretty exciting to be on the railing. I remember the loudspeaker, they call it the loud hailer. Uh, Patatroops, Patatroops serials, one and four, go to your sally ports. Sally ports, they call it? to the uh, rail, and you look down there, there's about a million miles. And you had to climb down this uh, cargo net that was used as a ladder. Oh, my God. And uh, you're carrying about 40 pounds of equipment on you. And luckily, they had it well organized because the boat crew down there, as soon as you got near there, they would grab your feet and steer you with the boat. Uh, I, I went ashore in the, in the first boat, again, with my commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Yarbrough, where I had almost no resistance. And I remember uh, breaking into a house to the left of the casino. And when I got to the street, there was this uh, dead German propped up against the wheel of what's called a prime mover, the, the tractor that pulls a big gun. Right. Oh. And that picture I saw later on in Life magazine. Really? And you saw it live? Huh? And you saw it before it was ever a famous picture? Yeah. Was uh, he, was he the, was it uh a German civilian killed by the Germans? No, he was a soldier. He was, he was, he was a Nazi, okay. German, German, he was in the Wehrmacht. Okay. And uh, I took my guys up to the, uh, went to the right down the road, to, and we knocked over the German, the Nazi fascist headquarters farther down the road. And I remember we went in, the, broke in the front door, and at that time I was with my lead scout, uh, Sergeant Dick Fisco, and we went up the stairs, and uh, the door had the stairs was locked. And it was like a scene out of a John Wayne movie. I had a grenade in one hand and a forty-five in the oh other. God. Oh, my God. Mr. <laughs> had a submachine gun, and we, he, I said, let him have it. And he blows the lock open uh, with the machine gun, and we broke to the room, and it was empty. They Germans had gone out the back window, but uh, Lieutenant Pearson was out there with his guys, and he not, took care of them. 
Oh, so they got they're they're done. They were done. Uh, they not. We I remember one we went back down to the main office of the headquarters there, and uh, there was a sideboard, big elaborate sideboard, and there was a bottle of scotch, and a camera. So I was with a different a different non-com. I said, Leon, which one do you want? He said, uh, Lieutenant, I'll take the scotch. Well, it's <laughs> probably long gone, but I still have the camera, which I used to take pictures from there right on to the end of the war. Oh, really? Do you still have those photos? Hmm? Do you still have photos? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What are some of your favorite photos that you've taken? A picture taken later on uh, after we had liberated the... Uh, of the concentration camp in Ludwigslust, Germany. I was again uh, the S two of the other regiment, the five. Right, I read about that. The Volbelus, and the right? picture, mm-hmm. which is my favorite war picture. And I, uh, I looked like one mean sucker, and I was a one mean sucker. And I, I but uh, could we, you describe the photo? I'm standing out there, and I've got my combat stuff on. All I was wearing at the time with my was a soft hat. And uh, I was carrying a 45, and I was just standing out there before our headquarters, and I looked pretty damn unpleasant. Me <laughs> uh, ticked off when I got there. So we, we uh, went went into we went into um, uh, Anzio, and we were making pretty good time. But they about the third or fourth day, we got to near Corano. Corano is where the son of Garibaldi, the Italian patriot, is buried. Okay. Uh, and we get this crazy order out of six corps, stop and dig in. Uh, I remember Curly Alvaro just almost went berserk. He couldn't believe us. And we had to dig in. We lost the initiative. They were able to bring big guns up in the hills ahead of us. And uh, it was like shooting fish in a rain barrel. And from the invasion to May when we broke out, there were 7,000 Allied troops killed on the beachhead. And uh, the story came out later on on an interview with Mark Clark, Clark every retired. He said, we had to consolidate the beachhead. That's nonsense. Yeah. And, uh, and we returned to Naples to regroup. We saved the beachhead when the Germans tried to split it in February. What beach was this? What? What beach was this? We're still in Anzio. Okay. And the Germans came in and tried to split the beach and drive us into the sea. And we stopped them. We got an award for that. And uh, I was really privileged at that point because of the first paratrooper, the first airborne soldier to receive the Medal of Honor, a man named Paul D. Huff from Tennessee. Uh, He was involved in an action in February of 1944. And uh, he received uh, the Medal of Honor as part in that. And, did you lose? Uh, did you, I'm sorry to interrupt, Colonel Katz. Did you? I just want to ask quickly. Did you lose a lot of um, people you were close to in mm-hmm. your division? Did you lose a lot of friends? And yes, I did. Uh, several of the guys who came over with me uh, out of the uh, 12 lieutenants, uh, at least five, four or five were killed. Red Dog Section was killed. Uh, Al Kinderneck was killed. Two other officers were coming later. Uh, we had we had very heavy casualties. Ugh, uh, at that time, I had another job in addition to being uh, S two and uh, I was also a graves registration officer, and I had to go up every night and uh, go and do administration up there and pick up the dead, and we bring them back. I you put the stretchers across the back of the jeep, wow. and I really bodies to the graves registration point. We, we would stop up there at uh, the uh, stone barn where the mortar platoon was, and we would tell these guys, don't shoot us on the way back. <laughs> and, they... <laughs> uh, my driver one night said, uh, Lieutenant, I'm not going up with you tonight. He said, you can court my... I just can't do it. So uh, I went up by myself, took care of what I had to do, and uh, I took him over to the aid station, uh, one of our battalion surgeons, uh, Captain Carlos C. Alden Jr., out of any train, we had a gift for psychiatry. And I left my uh, driver there for about three or four days. And at the end of the week, he came back to me and said, uh, I'll, I'll be up driving you tonight. After the war, transferred to the Air, uh, the Air, Air Force 
the Air Force, right? Psychiatric training in Cincinnati, where he was also serving as professor of air science and tactics, and uh, became the first chief psychiatrist of the United States Air Force. Tremendous guy. What's his What's his name again? Alden Carlos Coolidge Alden Jr. Alden Jr. And he became the first psychiatrist. Huh? He became the first psychiatrist. First chief psychiatrist. Chief psychiatrist of the United States Air Force. Oh wow! And, uh, he uh, was a direct descendant of John Alden of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anzio operation. Uh, we were slated to go into southern France. Now we were supposed to go in on this at the same time as the um, overload operation on June sixth, but there weren't enough boats in at that time and but we couldn't because there weren't enough boats, so they postponed our part of the invasion uh, uh, to middle of August. I had told the commander to you know, so look, I haven't been in any one of these jumps I haven't jumped in combat, and I think it's my turn to be there. And he said, no, I have another assignment for you. And I, that was it. So I, I never got to jump in combat. But I did, when I got there, I did uh, combat operations in the mountains above, uh, uh, mountains above Nice. Were you ever scared? Huh? Were you ever scared? Scared? Every scared. Day. What? Yes. Yeah. Were you ever scared for your life? Were there ever any situations or battles when you were, you thought scared, this yeah. was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was scared. Mm -hmm. I'd be lying if I said I did. Well, I was scared. Mm -hmm. But you had to control your fear so you wouldn't pass it out to the troops with you. Right. No, that must be very challenging. Uh, our part was, in the operation was to the Germans down from the blocking the troops of the, from Normandy going toward Paris. Right. Mm -hmm. Very effective because... Um, when we left southern France, we went up to an old town near Paris, and we passed miles and miles of smash of German equipment, German tanks. Uh, I remember seeing a, some French farmer out there with an acetylene torch coming up a Mark V Panther tank uh, for scrap metal. <laughs> and um, at that point, when we were in southern France, we found out for the first time that the Italians took no part in the Holocaust. Now, oh. Mussolini may have been the worst clown in the world, but he did not go into the, uh, anything to do with the Holocaust. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Fact, that's that's fact, fascinating. We found out the Italian military was so sickened by what the Germans were doing, that they were active in, in getting refugees uh, hidden away, spirited out of the country, protecting them. And uh, I that was confirmed later on when, I went back to southern France, which was then after D-Day, after VE Day, yeah, yeah. the recreation center. But the Italians had nothing to do with it. Nothing. So, so some of the Italians that were on the enemy side were helping save some of the Jews. The, the Italians were in southern France as part of the occupation force of, right. the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the Axis powers. Right. And they were doing what they could do to protect and help the refugees. I've never heard that. Well, you know That's incredible. Now. That's an incredible story. And as a matter of fact, later on, years, years later in 51, when I was at the uh, advanced course of the infantry school, I, we had several Italian officers with us too, I think. And uh, they were the most popular men in the class. And I talked to one of them. He told me he was Jewish. He was able to get himself captured by the British as quickly as he could. Right. And uh, after all, he stayed in the Italian regular army, which had become our allies. And uh, he had no, no problems in, in, in Italy as Jewish. And um, we had a chance to go to Rome. And uh, we also had some USO uh, things coming here from the States. And one of the USO uh, presentations was uh, Joe Lewis, who at that time was a world heavyweight champion. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So unlike this other guy who made a big simus out of the uh, Vietnam draft, he enlisted immediately. And they put him in the Air Corps. The Air Corps put him into an Air Corps USO unit and sent him overseas to different bases overseas to give exhibitions. 
Now, the men going up against them were, of course, not professionals, and he could put them away in, in a minute. And he realized that they'd been pushed into this by their buddies in the uh, outfits. So what he did was he worked them hard for four or five rounds, and he made them look good in front of their friends. Mm. I talked to him right around, low-key, quiet guy. Uh, as we say, this is a mensch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a real Men. decent human being. Could I just gear the conversation towards, sure. um, I wanted to ask you about two events towards the end of the war, the Battle of the Bulge, which I know you participated in, and the liberation of Wobelin, Wobelin, the concentration camp. I've never met anyone who was in Battle of the Bulge, so I was wondering. Oh, if you well, you have now. Now I have, I have now. Would you mind sharing with us your well, experience? Yeah. Uh, we, uh, were taken out of southern France when the operation was finished, brought up through through central France to a little town near uh, near Paris. It was scheduled for us to go to the Hurricane Forest operation, but as you know, the Nazis broke through in the Ardennes on the 16th of December, uh, 1944, and they caught the Allies flatfooted. They, they SHAEF had put green, untrained troops, inadequately armed, uh, to hold that line. And it was the same as in 1914 and 1940. Uh, all the experts, oh, they could never get to the, through the Ardennes. And so we got a call about the 21st of December that there would be uh, semi-trail, open semi-trail was coming to pick us up in the morning, late in the morning. And we had many guys on pass and leave at Paris. So we called the MPs and said, listen, uh, these men are there legitimately, but we need them back now. And they did a good job. And we got most of the guys back the first day. And we reported to uh, Major General Maurice Rose at the Manhay Crossroads. Rose commanded the 3rd Armored Division to which we were to be attached. Okay. Uh, one of our junior officers made the mistake of saying, uh, General, our men have not slept in 24 hours. And he barked back at him, my men haven't slept in 48 hours. You're a friend <laughs> troops. <laughs> uh, Rose's father was a rabbi, by the way, in, uh, oh. uh, in Denver, Colorado. And Rose was the... Uh, Highest ranking uh, Jew in the night in the armed force in the uh, uh, army. Really? What was his first name again? Maurice, M A U R I C E. Maurice Rose. Wonderful, hard nosed so and so, just kind of guy. That's amazing. Uh, we started out having a, uh, a firefight at a town called Sadzo, S A D Z O T. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a book about that. Uh, written by Bill Brewer. It's out of print, unfortunately. And uh, although you might be able to get it from the uh, Library of Congress. And sure. yeah. uh, our job was to clean out the SS from the area, including the woods around Sanzo. Uh We were chasing the Germans across northern Germany. And they were, it was very easy because they did not want to fall in the hands of the Soviets. 1% of the Germans captured in Russia ever got back to Germany. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't the Germans that. had a maid. They were, liber they were as liberators. Life in Soviet Russia was more horrible than was in Nazi Germany. No, that's what I heard. I heard they, the Soviets, they, were, they were brutal. The Germans were, were treated like liberators. Mm -hmm. With their own atrocities, and they blew it. Anyway, uh, it's hard to feel bad for the Nazis, though. It's hard to feel bad for them. Hmm? Hard for me to feel bad for the Nazis captured by the Soviets. I don't feel bad for them at all. Yeah, I know. I could give two shits. Um, <laughs> so, uh, where was I now? Okay, so the, you, the Nazis were fleeing to try to avoid capture by the Soviets. Yeah, so it, it was very easy to capture them. And uh, uh, my, my scouts... We had our own scouts in the intelligence operation. We, we didn't have time to ask the company to send patrols out. We did our own patrolling. And they surrendered very quickly and very easily. And they didn't want to get captured by the, by the, uh, by the Soviets. And uh, 
our, my scouts had uh, spotted this camp in Ludendorff. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they, they missed the two SS officers who had also spotted us and had taken off, but we did get the commandant, and I do have his gun, which I took from him. Yes, you, uh, yes, you were, yeah, yeah. And you said he and, was crying um, like a baby? Uh, the commandant's wife was very upset because I was tearing the off supplies for records and contraband, weapons and things. And she was raising hell. So I told my interrogator, you tell this fat slob, <laughs> if she doesn't shut her blank, blank mouth, I'm going to cut her blank, blank throat. And I was carrying a knife at the time in addition to my other weapons, and, and she did shut up. I went to a warehouse at the camp, and there was a mountain of tens of thousands of pairs of wooden clogs worn over and over again by inmates who had been worked and starved to death. And when General Gavin came on the scene, he was following us. Uh, he saw he saw the uh, bodies and the clogs and all the other things, and he made the townspeople march out. Did he on, do it that moment? Like, did he go what? out? Did General Gavin at that moment when he saw the pile of shoes, did he go into town immediately and make them? Well, no, he was, he always was up in the lead. He was there because he was leading the division. Right. He didn't want to meet anybody, but he made the, the townspeople bring the bodies, he brought, look at the bodies first. Oh my God. And then take the bodies by hand and any way they could back to Ludwigslust and build a cemetery there. It's still there. Did any of them seem remorseful? Did they seem upset no, by no, it? No, no, no. The attitude was, oh, we didn't know anything about this stuff here. Some were truthful, some were not. There were areas where you couldn't know what was going on. Country, oh, the country where there was no camp nearby, right. or in the, in the city if you were away from the railroad station, it would be possible to be there and not know what was going on. Got it. You would know that your neighbors were being taken away, and not necessarily Jews, but others were being taken away and then never, never being seen again. So uh, we, uh, a, one of the high schools in Michigan has adopted the camp, and this teacher takes his, whatever class he has at that moment, to Germany on a trip. They meet German students of the same uh, age group, and they have this, German kids have come to realize that this thing is all true, oh. and they they understand what's going on. Sorry, there was a Nazi you said you caught in the woods. You chased him in the woods, and you caught him, and he thought that. Well, yeah, uh, I, I captured this Nazi, this SS guy in uh, Belgium, and it was out in the old, near near the woods, but there were witnesses around, and I was really tempted to blow the so and so away. We had orders not to do that, to, to obey the convention. The Geneva Convention? Consideration for the, for the Germans, no matter who they were. But had we done so, the reprisals against our people who were prisoners would have been uh, murder. Got it. So you had, you had to obey. Uh, so he didn't know this. Now, I made him crawl for his life. It was very sad. Oh, that's amazing. He, so he had no idea that you couldn't kill him. He didn't know I was going to shoot him anyway. <laughs> Satisfying. You still remember his face? Yeah. We uh, had a chance, after we got to Berlin, to go to the, uh, the open up Neeson and Kahn as R&R centers. I was living in the Hotel California in the, in the lap of luxury for a week or so. <laughs> and uh, we did run into many, many refugees who told us the same thing over and over again, that they were, the Italians were helping refugees protecting the Germans and the Nazi, the God, the Gestapo, the... Uh, why was that? If huh? Mus why was that? What was it, if they were part of the Axis, why were they so intent not on the, saving people? Uh, who, uh, who was not a nice guy. Mussolini did not take part in the Holocaust. He wouldn't do it. Got it. That's it. And he wouldn't do it. And so, the Italian soldiers down in, in Italy, in France, were so sickened by what the Germans were doing that that's why they were helping out the refugees. I had never heard that story before. Well, you heard it now. I know. That's pretty amazing. And you said there was a synagogue that you went to and there were a lot of Soviet soldiers there? 
they had. I, I, I did go to a synagogue in Nice. Um, I was with a fellow named Sal Weber, one of our tenants, and uh, uh, we happened to be in Nice, and we tried to find out if there were any services being held. And somebody got us to a storefront synagogue in, in Nice, and I remember we barging in there in full combat gear, and we proceeded to panic the congregation. And, we were just a couple of Jewish boys who wanted to go to services. <laughs> and it was great. We, they, they had yarmulkes and palaces out for us in no time. Service that day. And when we came out, they were telling us of some of their experiences. And uh, these people had been through hell. And I remember with one guy telling us that the Gestapo had taken his wife. And uh, they, they'd been through hell. Where was he from? I don't know, but uh, when we left there, they were praying for our safety. They what? They were praying for our safety. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. After what they've been through. Did it, was it hard returning to the States? I mean, was it, you know, no. I mean. No, I could have gone home in May or June, because I had plenty of points, but I just, didn't know what I was going to be doing when I got back, so I stayed with the division through the uh, uh, through the um, um, our, our turn to be occupying Berlin. The what in Berlin? Hmm? The what in Berlin? You stayed through the. We stayed. We stayed. I stayed with the division while we were occupying Berlin. Got it. Okay. We left in uh, December. Um, we were. Uh, going back on a convoy and we found out that the, they had arranged for us to spend the night on some cold open hillside in Belgium. So one of my resourceful uh, GIs, she's going with the lieutenant, uh, there's a place in Belgium I know we go there and get a steak there and Belgian pastries and a bottle of wine, sleep on the floor, and then head for France the following morning. So we got out there and started with the convoy, then we Faked a breakdown, pulled over the side of the road, picked up the hood, and oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Convoy disappeared. There was one leaving there at the place, and the next morning we started out, and the fog was something you could cut with a knife. So we had what they call a command car, like a big open sedan, a truck, mm-hmm. and had big fenders up front. So I had a guy in each fender with a flashlight. We finally got to a clear spot. We showed up in France. So we told the uh, officer in charge of the convoy, we had an accident and couldn't be. He uh, looked at us and he uttered a, a coarse oath, and uh, he, of course, he didn't believe us. And uh, years later, I ran into him in infantry school. I was down there for the advanced course, and he was now like trouble. And he said, hey, come on over to our place for dinner tonight. A couple of guys had served with his division. Had a very nice evening. So I asked him, I said, uh, um, Ed, uh, did you believe me when I told you that story about having a breakdown? I wouldn't believe you were no good SOB. Right? <laughs> we got away with it. Were you friends with, um, huh? did, you stay, did you stay in touch with a lot of the men yes. that uh, you fought with and your yeah, generals? Some far-seeking people organized an association while we were in Berlin. Hmm. A couple of months due, a couple of years dues, and I got notice of a reunion sometime in 1947. Oh, wow. And I was at that time at Iowa State trying to resume my graduate studies, not doing very well at it. <laughs> why, and, uh, why not? Why not? I realized that I, I got a teaching fellowship. Okay. And I realized I liked the teaching. I couldn't stand the damn research. Yeah, I know you have to like Yeah, yeah. I went to the VA, and I spent a day there taking uh, aptitude tests. And he said to me, you know, you don't belong here. Get the hell out of here. And you should be in uh, medicine, uh, teaching, uh, uh, social work, law, and so forth. Or you're dealing with people. Yeah. I had perfected my, my, my people skills. And I did. I quit, the, I quit school, and I went to law school. At that time, there were no SATs, and you were admitted if you had graduated from the undergraduate school, which I did. And uh, I, I walked in my first class at the law school, UConn Law School, and my first class was with Professor 
William Flavia Starr in contrast. And the moment he opened his mouth, I knew this is where I belonged. As a veteran and as a lifetime veteran, do you still, do people still ask you when they find out you were in World War II, aside from me, <laughs> but obviously I'm interested in it, but do you ever just come across strangers in your everyday when they find out you were in World War II? Do they ask you questions the way I've been asking you? Oh, yeah. Yeah? I, uh, I had some uh, experience with meeting people that were in the battalion, but I hadn't known them at the time. And one was a medic, uh, and I don't know, involved with something in the court. We got to talking, and he told me that he had been the 509, and uh, he, was, he had been a combat medic. I didn't know that, and he didn't, he didn't become a lawyer. Oh, wow. And, uh, then our battalion also had, a, had, a, had an association. Uh, these associations, unfortunately, start to fall apart because it's one thing when you're with people you serve, and they really serve on active duty. Right. But the, those who are coming in now to the division uh, are either going to be short-termers who are looking for educational benefits when they get out, or long-termers who are career people and right, the, their career, their career, right, right, their career military. Yeah. And uh, the associates are to fall apart. Hmm. It was like the um, GAR after the Civil War. And these were Union soldiers, and they had formed a big organization. They were very powerful politically. And, but when they started to die off, there was no one coming in at the bottom to replace them. Hmm. A lot of these wartime associations just sort of fell apart. But you do remember people or, or contact people you were close to. Like so Harry. do you ever talk to your granddaughter about it? Because she's 12, right, Tabitha, or 13? Do Only if they ask me. And, Only and if they very, ask you. Do they ask you a lot of questions? I, I just can't talk about it. All the time, yeah. You don't just bring it up. You wait till they ask you questions. I can tell the funny things that happen. Like we were going across northern Germany, and we would stop at the farmhouse, any farmhouse, to make sure it was clear, and the, the house was gone. So he pulled into this one farmhouse, and uh, it was clear, but on the stove, there was still a pot of boil, big pot of boiling water, and next to it, a crock of brownstone crock full of fresh eggs. Oh, so they had just been there. We hadn't seen a fresh egg since I don't know when. <laughs> And uh, Sergeant looked at me, I looked at him, and I nodded, and he started to make eggs for, for the So the people who were in the farmhouse must have fled. They were gone, yeah. Yeah, like they must have just fled, right? Yeah. So uh, I, I, uh, uh, I decided I better wash up. I was sneaking to high heaven. <laughs> to the waist, and then I thought, well, let me, why not shave? So I took off my the old the steel helmet, the M1 you take apart, there's a steel pot and okay. then the plastic liner. So I took the pot and I was um started to lather up and stand there, naked to the waist, dripping water, dripping lather, and another convoy comes roaring in the farmyard, and the lead Jeep had a red plate with a silver star. It was General uh Ira P. Swift, Brigadier General, one star. The assistant division commander, and known to be a hard-nosed SOB, mm. in there. Uh, who's in charge here? I am, sir. What's going on, uh, sir? Now, when you get the question like this, you'll make a big thing of it your wristwatch. It's a great prop. Uh, sir, uh, we're ahead of schedule, and we're supposed to meet uh, Colonel Ekman and Gravyak for a crossroad. And I looked up, and he wasn't buying the story. <laughs> and I'm feeling the ice cracking under my feet. And all of a sudden, he turns around and grins. He says, okay, carry on. We, took the, we finished up the eggs. Oh, because he saw you guys were eating the eggs. Oh, that's very funny. He, he, I'm sure he didn't believe a word I said. What was his name? Uh, Ira, Ira, Ira P. Swift, S-W-I-F-T. Ira P. Swift. One star, BG, and he was the assistant division commander. Serious son of a bitch? As you he said. Was a yeah. He was a That's amazing. So before we go, is there anything you would want to tell me that you haven't talked about something, an experience as a veteran that's very important to you, or 
during your time well, serving? I, yeah, I've been treated, as a veteran, I've been treated very well. Um, That's great. I, I know I was quite surprised to go to New York some time ago. And to me, New York is just a cold city full of a lot of cold people. This is And uh, I had an amazing number of people. I had one of these hats on. And uh, amazing number of people stopped and, you know, thank you for your service. And I was oh. really very pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I'm a member of the uh, local VFW post, VFW post uh, 3272 here in Avon. And um, What's that? What's the 3272? It's, a, it's, it's a, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and it's the 3,272nd post, which hasn't constituted. Okay. Very active post, and we um, take part every year in what we call the poppy drive. We don't sell the poppy, but people make a contribution. We say, right. thank you, and give a poppy. Right, because that's and, supposed to, uh, poppies yeah. represent veterans, right? We get, we get a big response on that. We raise a lot of money, and we have a list of Avon organizations that we raise money. And, uh, it, you, have a list of, you have a list of what? Could you repeat that? What? You have a, I couldn't get that. You have a list of people? You have a list? You said. Well, we have a list of the uh, organizations that we make contributions to. That's great. Our poppy drive. That's awesome. We, we, we contribute to the dollars, the scholars, uh, uh, various. Uh, the only organization we contribute outside of Avon is the uh, VFW Children's Home, which takes care of children who have been orphaned by war until they can be placed with, with relatives or some appropriate placement. You st and still do that? They're still involved with Oh, that? yes, we still do that. Oh, that's amazing. Or if, like, from all over the country. That's, I mean, from all over the world. That's amazing. Yeah. That's difficult. Yeah, we, uh, we do the uh, Memorial Day exercises. I've been a speaker there. And, uh, oh, wow. We also, we also conduct uh, Veterans Day exercises in, in Avon. Connecticut. That's amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. I feel like I just watched a movie. <laughs> well, you don't learn this in history books. They don't teach you these. They don't teach you the human stories. They teach well, you. The they facts. don't tell you a lot of things. Uh, you got a report from Fifth Army, very elaborate, big colored uh, panels and this and that. And uh, I looked in there to see what they said about the Anzio Beachhead, and all they said, and I'm sure it was a cover up. There was an invasion at Anzio, period. That was it. And it never came out publicly. Uh, there was also a, a, an exercise before the uh, Normandy invasion on the, uh, east, it's on the east coast of England. And the plan was to bring in the ships with men on them. Men would go over the side on, on the cargo nets, get into small boats and go to the shore. There was a lot of e-boat activity in the channel. The Germans had these little, fast, heavily armored boats. Yes, 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 and they were, yes, they were, yeah, 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 yeah. And they did not, it didn't occur to some fat-headed general to provide security. And while they were unloading the boats, uh, getting off the ships, the boats came in the channel, there was nothing to stop them, and uh, they opened fire. The army covered that up for a long time. Then they finally admitted there were 600 casualties. Jesus. A man, a veteran who lived on Moravia Road behind me, on the other side of me, was in the Navy, and he was a coxswain, and his job was to run the small boats and bring them. And he told he was on the cleanup crew, and it wasn't 600 bodies. They, they told me they took 3,000 bodies out of the channel. Were they all U.S. or all, all allies? Yeah, all casualties of that. But they were all allies from the ally side. Yeah, a lot of people, yeah. Oh, that's horrible. And the I army only ever that. admitted Not the army. Never the brass hat that threw that up. He should have had security there. That's horrible. And has the army ever admitted? Uh, the army always developed something in-house. And in 1940, they developed this field jacket wear. This was amazing. I'm so grateful to you. If you think of anything else, let Tim or Naomi know. Give my best regard to your grandfather, please. Oh, he he passed away about eight years I'm ago. Sorry. No, but he was ninety. He was ninety-eight. 
He lived to be 98 years old. uh, Into the Veterans History Project. I don't think he did. I've been working on that with people from the Central Connecticut State University in Britain. It's a federal project created by federal statute, and they collect histories of veterans of all wars possible. Right now, they're trying to get the. I'll tell you a story if you want to hear it very quickly. So my grandfather was stationed in France, Italy, and Northern Africa. He could never say where. Like, so we have hundreds of letters, hundreds of letters that my grandparents wrote back and forth from 1942 to 1945. So he was supposed to go, he was supposed to be stationed here. And like he was, I don't know what happened. At the last minute, they shipped him overseas and he was, he was gone for two and a half years. And he was a military officer. And when they were stationed, and I think it was Naples, there was a racetrack, I could be wrong, where they would, where the soldiers would come in and out who were injured or where they would like enlist new soldiers. I don't, he told me once and I, I know I'm screwing it up and I'm going to get it wrong, but I know they were stationed at a racetrack for a while in Italy. And my grandpa was a card player. Both my grandpas were. They were amazing card players because they were both brilliant. And he ran, he called it the crap games, the underground crap games. So they had tents all around the racetracks, all the GI soldiers, and they would shoot craps to pass the time. He's like, that's what we did. We played cards, we read magazines, we read letters. And because he was an officer, he took a cut. So he'd go into each tent and take a percentage of the winner's earnings. And he sent all that money back to my grandma in New York City. He sent it as money orders. And that's how they put a down payment on the house they had in Queens was all from money he got playing crap games in the war. And I I once said to him, but it was it, were you allowed to do that? And he said, no, we weren't allowed. Like I wasn't allowed to do it, but I was an officer. So nobody was going to tell me what to do because I was the head person. And I thought he was an officer. He was a military police. Yeah. He was an MP. Hmm? He was an MP. He was a military. He was an officer. Yeah. Yeah. And then he also told me this one story and I was reading it in a letter And I brought it up to him and I said, Grandpa, I read a letter that you wrote to Grandma talking about Irving Berlin and how Irving Berlin had come down for the USO show. And you and I said to him, why did you never tell me this? And he said, well, we met a lot of people. A lot of people came and performed. And I said to him, did you meet him? And I said, of course I met him. I was an officer. I had to be backstage escorting people on and off. And I said to him, I was like 28 or 29. And I said, I'm a professional singer. And you never thought to tell me that you met Irving Berlin and saw him perform live. And he said, ah, we met a lot of people. <laughs> I met Irving Berlin in a bar in Rome. Oh, Irving really? Okay, friendly guy. That's amazing. This was so great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yes, thank you. Hopefully I get to see you in person someday. Okay. Okay, bye. Thank you, Tim. Well, oh, you're you. welcome, Suzanne. This was wonderful. Privilege. No, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. If there is a word or phrase you would love to have covered on the show, please don't hesitate to reach out. And remember, whatever you are thinking, feeling, or experiencing, there's always a word for that. See you next time. Mm-hmm.